We live in a bipolar world. From one side, we all want diversity and inclusion. And from the other side, the progress that we have made until today is definitely absurd. You know that I'm a kind of a nerd, so I'm going to throw out some numbers. So corporations have identified as, who identify themselves as more diverse are and inclusive, are 35% more likely to outperform their competitors. This is famous McKinsey who is throwing that at numbers. Another number, diverse management teams lead to 19% higher revenue, Boston Consulting. Another one from McKinsey, the GDP could increase 26% by equally diversifying the workforce. That, look, that looks like some obvious financial numbers that could reinforce the idea that diversity and inclusion is positive. Nevertheless, when we see the numbers about around 6.6% of all Fortune 500 companies that have women as their CEOs, we can doubt a little bit. 78% um, of employees who responded to a Harvard Business Review study say that organizations, their organizations, in fact, lack diversity in leadership positions. Overall, in fact, the, the situation is not good. And today I want to discuss to, about a topic that is very dear to my, to my heart. Many of you already know that I I was born in Latin America, and thanks to the efforts of a little lady, my mother, I could end up in Switzerland and I grew up in, 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 uh, in Europe. Uh, and I had the opportunity to go through the journey of being an immigrant. And despite what many people may say is that no matter how long you have been living in a country, how much you belong, you feel belonging to the country of adoption, you will always be perceived as an immigrant. Now, I want to believe that we are wired to be biased. So that is something biological that makes us think that people that are different than us um, have certain um, hurdles uh, on top of them. But I need to ask a real expert on the topic. Let me introduce you to Goose, to uh, Hillman, he is the founder of Culture Beats, which is an organizational cultural diversity consultancy firm. Um, and I have the impression that there is a little bit of a personal story on why Hughes has stepped up in the area of organizational cultural diversity. I know, Hughes, that you grew up in countries where you have seen the, the journey of immigrants in the search for a better future. And I want you first to tell me a little bit more how it all started this interest. Fantastic. Ivan, thanks so much. And uh, beautiful listening to your story uh, just now and definitely resonated. Um, like, like you, in many ways, I'm an immigrant. So I grew up, uh, I was born in Africa, in Zambia, on the Copper Belt, uh, close to the border with Zaire, uh, to Dutch parents. Uh, my father was a mining engineer and uh, lived uh, most of my young life up to the, the age of a young adult in uh, uh, Zambia, in uh, uh, the Netherlands for two years, Namibia, South Africa. So I was exposed to multiple cultures. And I think in terms of my journey and why this is important to me and, and why this is important as an organization, there are three quick stories that I want to uh, tell you. 
And the first was um, growing up in a multicultural environment with multiple languages, you, you often get the perception that um, you, you have so much more that you can experience. You know, if you're living in an environment where there's multiple languages or multiple cultures, it's like a bouquet of flowers. You know, yeah. you're not just restricted to that poppy or to that red rose. That red rose is fantastic, no matter uh, what you think but a red rose only comes to, it, to its element if it's included in, in other flowers. And the three stories that I want to share very briefly are the, the first one, when I came back uh, to the Netherlands, even though I was from Dutch parents, I really had to learn Dutch again at school. So I was an immigrant child of four years old, sitting in a primary school, having to relearn my own mother language. You know, and that does something with you because it takes a while for you to build friends and to make friends, even at that stage. And the more that you understand the language and the more that you understand the culture, the more included you are in conversation and in play. And that left a mark. So that's story number one. Story number two is when I was a, a teenager, I left Namibia. And in Namibia, I had so many friends of different nationalities. I... I had Portuguese-speaking uh, friends uh, who came from Angola uh, and who were of a totally different skin color and, and background than I was. I had a, a good friend from Lesotho whose mother was from uh, Cote d'Ivoire, uh, from Abidjan. Um, we stayed in touch. Uh, that, that sort of diversity and, and the fact that in Namibia you spoke multiple languages and you could code switch between languages. So you spoke German the one moment, English the next, Afrikaans, the next Dutch at home. Um, it was fantastic. It was vibrant. It was alive. It was like the spices that we have in Africa and in, in many different countries. You know, you could eat it. You could taste it every single day. And then we switched to South Africa. And I, I love South Africa in many ways. But we switched to South Africa at the height of apartheid. So we, we moved to South Africa in January 89. And I went through the last three years of school and then to the military uh, in uh, South Africa. During the, I think, the crux of the struggle in terms of apartheid and, and what that meant. And all of a sudden, instead of sitting in this multicultural environment, I sat in a boys-only school with only white boys in it, mm. in one of the most uh, conservative areas in South Africa, um, with all the attitudes, preconceptions, uh, and and sort of, you know, structural um, condensing that, that took place in that. So that really made an impact on me. And then the last thing was that when I was 27, I came to the Netherlands actually with the intention to work for a, a number of months. And I found myself living and working with a whole group of people that came primarily from Poland. So I lived in the immigrant uh, uh, environment. I lived on the uh, labor parks, as they call them, uh, with them. Uh, I spent a year and a half living there, and I spent the subsequent 18 years working primarily with uh, immigrants uh, from a Polish, Slovakian, Bulgarian, Romanian, uh, Czech, uh, Hungarian, uh, uh, culture and learning to associate with them, but also seeing from their side uh, their their problems and the things that they ran against, and that has formed me in in so many different ways, and that's why I do what I do. Yes. So what is quite touching, uh, and I fully relate to that, is that 
very often we forget that when you are an immigrant, um, you feel a little bit lonely once you are removed from your original um, uh, place where you feel belonging. You feel belonging not Absolutely. to a specific race, not to a specific culture, but the, to an environment where you feel protected, safe of being yourself because they have adopted you, I don't know, as a white person in, inside of the black community or as just like you are who's, I don't care from where do you come from. So, and as soon as we are removed from that, we feel unprotected, we feel so vulnerable to, uh, to attacks, to, to don't feel belonging. And, and I totally relate to this, uh, to this uh, environment. That is quite touching. The second element that I, I take that, that is more related to the situation in South Africa is that it seems that this element that makes us different sometimes it's related to the process of healing. So we've, we had once an experience or sometimes we have heard that someone had an experience, a bad experience with that specific culture. And then we, we keep it inside of us. It's like hard coded inside of us. And we associate this bad experience to the rest of, of, of the community. The process of healing in South Africa, it, it has taken years. We are not there yet. But little by little, we see in the uh, in the generations in the black population and the white population already some hints that it is over. That whatever happened in the past that is uh, that is over. But it takes God damn a long time. It's almost like our brain does not allow us to say we are humans. We have made mistakes. No, no, no. It has to keep be kept because we repeat the same conversations again and again. Hey, you remember that in. 95, this happened and he got beaten or he was insulted, he was mistreated or that the prime minister is, a, is an idiot, whatever. So we always put him back again and again the, se the same stories. I, I love that, uh, that one. We are going to get back to this sense of belonging. So when you are an immigrant, where the hell do you belong? Am I myself? Am I a South American? Am I a Swiss citizen? How, what do I feel? It has been a, a lot of changes. And the older I, I become, the, 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 the more I become accepting that it might be that I don't belong to a nationality. And, I, and that's, that's it. Even that so resonates uh, with me because it's been part of my cultural journey as well. And I think anybody who moves from their own country to a different culture or to a different environment, um, has that sense of um, when I've moved from point A to point B and I've lived in point B for a while, I am not entirely the same as people at point B. And that's okay, um, but there are small, subtle differences sometimes. You know, perhaps sometimes it's just the understanding of a cultural uh, festival that's very important in that area. Yeah. So in the Netherlands, for instance, the area that I live, Carnival, is, is extremely important around about this time of year, specifically in uh, February. Um, coming in as an immigrant, even though my roots are Dutch in terms of my parents, I am not of this area. So I will always walk a little bit on the outside. It's a little bit like Robert Frost speaks about in his poem that I've walked under the lamplight uh, looking in at the world, you know. You look in at the world, you're part of the world, but still you're on the fringes. You, you're partially in the shadows, uh, as it were. 
then when you look back at where you've grown up, you've changed. You've you've become different. You're not part of that world anymore. And it's it's a struggle, and it's a struggle of acceptance to to come to that point. I think one of the things that drives me in that is is a famous quote um, that I, I heard from Lech Walesa, um, and probably Lech Walesa is, is uh, very famous to to you and to a lot of the the citizens. Um, of course, he has the the most famous quote of all. When asked why he does what he does, you know, in, in terms of historically and Solidarność and so forth, he said "Nichtsem alle muschen." which means literally translated, I don't want to, but I have to. You know, there's something that drives me. There's something that drives us. Now, on one level, that's what drives me now in terms of the work that I do, but it's also what drives me as an immigrant. I don't always want to. I don't always want to be an immigrant. I don't want to live here. My heart still goes out to Africa in many ways, but I have to. You know, there are the reasons that I'm here. But the most famous quote, and that's the one that really drives me from the heart, um, is where he talks about we we can hold our heads high because we have paid the price for freedom, and freedom is priceless. And I, I want to tie that in quickly to what you said in the beginning. You know, as an immigrant, you're paying a price. You're leaving behind your hearth, your home, your way of life, the foods you know, and, and sometimes we accept it and, and we move on and it's fine and it's great. But other times we're walking in the marketplace and we just smell that smell. And all of a sudden the tears come to your eyes and you think, oh, wait a moment. You know, this is this is how mama or this is how Oma made made that spice, that food, that, that thing that I haven't tasted in five years. And, and that's so important. And it, it brings up these memories. Now, when immigrants are working in a different country or they're in a different environment, is it not our responsibility as people to treat them in such a way that they do not pay that price for freedom twice? And what I mean by that is they've paid the price for freedom already. Why are we treating them as less of a human, as less of an individual, thereby forcing them to repay that price every single time, every day that they're at their workplace or every day that they're interacting with us. Uh, it, I relate quite a lot to, the, to this feeling of nostalgia, of these smells that, that, that you have mentioned. You made me think of, because you mentioned Lech Valesa, so I, I was thinking about Eastern Europeans. They have this feeling of nostalgia quite embedded. So they are tough guys on the surface, but then they think about mama or they think about something from their childhood and they can be crying in front of you. That's quite, a, quite amazing. Um, so I, I wanted to get back to the to the wall of corporations because we all believe that society out there is a mix of different socioeconomical backgrounds that, yeah, maybe they were not well-educated and this is this is the people. And we believe that corporates should be the, the cream of the cream, the pe people who are well-educated, so there shouldn't be that problem. Nevertheless, we are all aware that there is many organizations not uh, being at their optimal in terms of inclusivity more than diversity, in fact, because, I mean, having numbers about how many nationalities we have, it doesn't mean anything for people because what we want is to be inclusive, not to be uh, represented as a, as a number. So, <laughs> and, and, and I want to get to dig a little bit more in, the, in, in building this 
this idea that on top today, in fact, not only corporations become more diverse, but it is expected if you are in a leadership position to go and travel different in different areas of the world. So myself, I had the opportunity to be in five different uh, different countries. Uh, I have been in the Arab world, in the Asian world, in Africa, uh, and of course in my home place in uh, uh, somewhere in Europe. Um, so according to you, what are the behaviors or traits that people should have to really thrive in this global multicultural world? We cannot do anything. It's a movement, it's a trend. It, it becomes so inexpensive to move someone from one place to the other. But in terms of the adaptations that we should have, what are the behaviors and traits that you feel like we, we should develop? I think, Ivan, there's a couple of things, and it starts with absolute curiosity, right? The, the second that I'm talking to you and, and the, the second that I hear that you are from a certain country, I have a mental picture that comes into mind. Like you said in the beginning, we hear something, something sticks with us, something resonates, et cetera, et cetera. But when is the last time that we've actually sat with somebody and said, tell me, tell me what it's like, you know, um, what, what are the things that make you most happy about coming from the place that you have? So where, where's that curiosity? Uh, we, we tend to go in, um, particularly, and I'm talking about corporations, right? We, we tend to go in and say, I'm going to show you my way. And I'm going to show you my product or my way of doing things. And you know something, it works for me, so it must be good. So I'm going to put it on you. Right, and that, that there's an essential sort of bias or uh, an essential problem with that approach. However, if I come in and and I start traveling and I start speaking to you and I say, I really want to understand. I just want to sit at your feet for a period of time and understand how your culture works. Understand uh, what this means to you. Understand what is important to you. You know that there, there is such beauty in knowledge. There's such beauty in understanding context that I can really feel and, and move with you when you are making a decision. Hmm. So the first thing that we need to do is, is be curious, be very, very curious about the person or about the culture that we're moving into. The second thing is that we need to be aware of our own culture. And I don't mean just aware as in, hey, this is my culture and these are my favorite foods and this is my favorite rock group and, and that sort of thing. These are all very good things. But be very aware of not only the good things of your own culture, but the limitations of your own culture, um, the expectations of the culture, uh, and also perhaps some of the biases that you do have naturally. Okay. And then the last thing is make sure that you um, are moving and, and finding the places that are better in the other culture. And what I mean by this is we generally tend to say, okay, this is my culture and these are the good elements and that's that culture and those are the elements in that culture. But I think that these things are better in my culture. So I'm going to try and transpose them onto the new culture, right? Or I'm going to hold on to them and try and integrate them. And I, I think we should turn that around. I think we should say, honestly, where are points better in a different culture? 
And I'm reminded as we're talking about something that my brother said uh, many, many years ago. He'd moved uh, internationally way before I did. He's younger than I am, but he'd moved for his career internationally, uh, moved to London, then uh, to Seattle, back to South Africa, back to uh, Seattle and the States again. And I phoned him up and said, look, I'm, I'm thinking of going to the Netherlands. What do you think? And he said, hey, it depends on what your mindset is going to be. He said, if you want to move to a new culture and a new place, and you are looking for the same as you have now, only better, then you might be faced with a challenge because you're going to cling on to what you think is good and transpose that. But what you need to do is say, okay, I'm going to go open with an open slate, accept the good, accept that which is less positive to me, and really be curious and question myself about that. And I think in terms of business, when you're doing that as well, if you are entering negotiations with an international culture, uh, when you are moving into a sales and marketing environment, or you're being seconded as an expat into a new culture, the ability to be curious and to start off with a blank slate is going to get you further than any other skills that you're going to learn in the process. I love it. So there is two elements. One is curiosity, inquiring about uh, the, the other, and the level of self-awareness. And beyond self-awareness is, in, in fact, cross-awareness because you need to be also aware about what others are good, less good at, uh, this is super, super important. And very often is, it is very difficult to remove, to reprogram our, our brain to, to say, because we are always, let's say, I mean, the easy way is to think about, okay, Latinos, we believe that we are super creative. Uh, from my Swiss side, I, I would believe that I'm, everything is about having a level of quality that is up there. But is it the reality? So if I dig in the specificities of, of my two cultures or even myself, I, I would realize that I, I am not one label. And by the way, I, I, I want to say to the audience, so when we, are, when we be, belong to a, a certain culture, we don't feel bad if somebody asks us questions about our culture. In fact, we, we feel good. So any a little bit contradicts the uh, the American approach of saying yeah this is his privacy I'm not going to ask who's how it is to be Dutch because he he may get offended no that is not true most of us we are glad that somebody takes interest on on what we are in fact without preconception that's why it's about questions it's not about hey is it true that you guys are doing this or that no it's about asking open open questions um. The other point I wanted to highlight is the definition of culture, because we use culture in the context of work culture, so that what defines the characteristics of, of our workplace. But when we are in society, culture can be our age group, it can be our religious beliefs, it could be uh, our gender. Uh, it's not only about nationality, right? Because okay. in fact, if we talk about his culture, maybe he wouldn't he wouldn't even associate himself to the culture, the Dutch culture. Maybe he's something else. So we need to define culture as a as a group of people that have the same beliefs, uh, same attitudes towards uh, towards life, rather than just a piece of passport. Am I wrong? Absolutely, uh, Absolutely. and. Um... 
You know, there, there are so many definite uh, definitions of culture. Um, if you take a formal definition like Hofstede, you know, he says it's the collective programming of the mind. Um, and, and there are so many different uh, perspectives. I was at a, a conference in Namibia a number of years ago, and speaking at that conference, I was talking about, you know, your values and your belief system. Uh, and I actually uh, said at that point, and I think it's, it's the, the point that I, I try and carry around with me. So it's part of my philosophy and my being is that I am not a Namibian by value of the color of the passport that I carry on the outside, but I'm Namibian because I carry Namibia on the inside. Oh, exactly. <laughs> and it, it, it's the same, you know, um, if, if you're part of any culture, whether it be a national culture, generational culture, or even the culture on the work floor that you belong to the sales team and your best friend belongs to the engineering team, that is going to rub off on you in some way. It's, it's a way of thinking. It's a way of framing the world. And there's nothing wrong with us framing the world. It helps us to understand the world and to move in it and to find a way that we can relate to the world. The danger comes in where I believe that my frame is the only way of looking at the world. Mm. That's when the danger comes in. So if we want to be fluid, and especially if you're talking about international cultures and, and uh, cultures which are uh, prevalent on the workforce and that are not leading to toxicity and some of the other things that you've spoken about in, in some of your other podcasts as well, then we need to be aware that my frame of the world is is just one way of looking at it. Mm. And I need to be curious about how others look at the world and, and what are the benefits of us meshing that. And, and there's so many studies done. And you, you gave some beautiful uh, quotes at the beginning uh, about uh, the percentages and so forth. But if you take a look at studies on creativity, on innovation, it's when we mesh those worldviews, when we put them together, that we get the most creative uh, solutions. You know, um, how, how much uh, can we learn from a culture where there, there may be a, a, a Dubai-based company that has experts working in it from all over the world? You know, how much can we learn from that, from the different mindsets, the different ways of doing things? You know, um, there, there, there's so much that we can learn from each other in, in that sense. And that... That is what is important to me as well. You know, I, I cannot speak for Dubai culture. I cannot because I don't have that experience. I'd love to come and sit and learn at some stage and, and to experience it and to absorb it. But what I can do is tell you uh, about the culture, uh, primarily in logistics, manufacturing, FMCG uh, in Western Europe, when it comes to integrating or not integrating people of cultures based from Middle and Eastern Europe, mm. okay? Because there we have a fundamental issue. And Chris, and, and I, before the podcast, I, I mentioned to you a, a, a little bit, we, we started already the, the conversation and it is true that sometimes in certain countries in Europe, it has happened that you are maybe third generation and you are still treated like you just arrived. And they still crack the same jokes about you arriving from with the boat and and, and, and that is crazy. Um, I have seen that there has been certain improvements uh, in, I can talk about Switzerland a, a little bit in terms of the integration. Uh, and, 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 and the fact is that what the Swiss government has tried to do is to embed 
the foreigners who are arriving, the immigrants who are arriving into places where they can mix with the Swiss population. So if you are of a socioeconomical background that is low, you will go also to a socioeconomical background that is low, but is a mix where there is 50% of real Swiss who will be in discussing with you. And that makes that after a couple of years, you are speaking with the same <laughs> traditional Swiss accent. <laughs> you will be saying the same swear words. You will be doing the same things and you kind of share the same the, the values and kind of you forget that. So as long as you keep a common trait that you need to speak the same language. So they, they there is there will always be someone in Switzerland who will uh, who will uh, ask you something and if you don't answer back in the, in the language of course then for him you are a foreigner but if you are whatever color of your skin is and you you answer back with a good Swiss accent then everything is fine <laughs> they will not bug you anymore let's get back to the workplace I'm always diverting on this subject I have the impression. And this is related to a reading that I did like maybe five years ago, there was HBR who was doing a benchmark between the leadership traits of women and men. Uh, and they have, they found out of course that, uh, I don't know if there was 21 leadership traits and in 19 of them, women were beating men. Now, the question is that when you look at this trait in the specific, most of them are related to this level of empathy. And what, and the assumption that I have is that maybe women have an advantage uh, as the, uh, with this integration with different culture, as they are associated with more this with uh, these empathetic traits compared to men. Is that true? Do you do you feel that women can pull it out more naturally than than men? Oh, this this is a, a whole different topic, even, and it's and it's a beautiful one, and it's nice to to see that there's this flow now from the the cultural quotient, the CQ to the the EQ, and I'm I'm glad that you started on that. I think empathy is probably the most valuable skill that we can have on the the, the work floor, um, and it's very good that there's. Uh, a lot of focus on it recently, that there's been a lot of empirical research uh, done on it. Um, I'm absolutely 100% in agreement that women in general have the edge on it. Yeah. I'm going to just say one thing that there's a, a caveat uh, to that. Um, I hope that we can soon get to a society in which we do not need to have formal programs for inclusion anymore or formal programs anymore to break through the glass ceiling. Now, that, that might be a strange thing to say uh, coming from a middle-aged white guy, um, but what I mean by that is, is the following. Women are generally better at empathy than men. They, they're more focused, they're more sensitive, they're more aware uh, than men. However, for a very, very long time, the only way that a woman leader has managed to keep herself standing in a man's world is by following the advice that men have given them. Be harder, be stronger, you know, be more uh, focused, you know, lead directly, okay? And the, 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 the danger comes in is when women have to subject their natural empathy and their natural leadership styles and their natural sense of inclusivity and, and um, group forming and family to try and adhere to those standards, 
I hope that the day comes where we realize that we can just let women be, mm. that they can move from their strength and that they do not have to, um, I don't, I don't want to use the word compete because it's not a competition, but um, empathy is the strongest when it comes from the sense of heart, from the sense of self, from the sense of belonging. Um, empathy should not be a focus anymore. It should just be in the, 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 the workplace. So, yes, I think that women um, have the upper hand, the advantage in that. But I think it's time that we level the playing field and that we stop uh, looking at empathy as an add-on, but say that it's crucial to our survival um, as a working species rather than just an added benefit. Yes, totally agree with, uh, with you uh, on, the, on that specific point. Um, I, I want to, to leverage a little bit on the, all, of, all, of, all of the experience that you have as a founder of Culture Beats with Zid, <laughs> um, in order to ask you, in fact, now, how can people develop behaviors that are helpful in a multicultural environment, knowing that traditional trainings and awareness sessions is like doesn't solve the problem. Basically, they are not successful. So, because it has been happening for already many years that people are paying someone to go and train for six hours one day, and nothing changes because at the end we have to fight something that is already pre-programmed in our in our brain and without practice. It doesn't, nothing happens. I mean, the, the fact that I know from where biases come doesn't make me less of a biased person. I'm still pre-programmed with my cultural backgrounds, with this discussion between my fellow men. And so I have already a perception of the world that has been pre-programmed and to break, to unlearn this, it's bloody difficult. And it's not an awareness session that will help me. How can we develop these new behaviors? Um, I think there are two words that uh, I'd like to use, and they both start with a T. Well, they're not totally two words, they're sort of phrases. <laughs> and the first one is tech boxes, and the second one is travel. And what I mean by that is we must stop seeing inclusion and uh, um, awareness as something to tick a box. So what we, what we generally tend to do, um, said sort of, very directly is we run into problem X. We put in a program to train it or to train the counterpart. And then we tick boxes. Yes, we've done it. Thank you very much. We can move on with life and life is good. Okay. Training and awareness is not ticking a box. If I've grown up in a society for 27 years that has taught me that my neighbor is not to be trusted because he comes from a different environment, then having a six-hour training is not going to undo that damage. Yeah. If, however, we start seeing that training as central to our success, as a continuous process of micro-learning and a, a continuous process of inclusion and awareness, rather than a six-hour training uh, for middle managers just to show that there are differences, then we're heading in the right direction. Okay, so we need to put it up on the corporate agenda as far as possible and not just uh, delegate it to HR. Mm. The second is we need to travel. 
Because the more I travel, the more I realize that my little corner of the world, whether it be my country, my environment, or even my business unit, is not the end station. It's not the be-all of everything. So I need to travel. I need to be moved out to to different uh, cultures. I need to um, understand and be immersed in a different culture. Okay. If if I'm uh, learning Chinese, for instance, uh, depending on the type of Chinese, whether it be Cantonese, Mandarin, or or any of the other uh, uh, Chinese uh, forms of, of language. Um, I, I can study for six years at a university and think that I'm fluent in China, but I will not have the feeling, the uh, the immersion that comes with actually having walked the fields, uh, having lived in the cities, having immersed, having traveled on the tubes, um, you know, uh, having understood all the the the, the uh, emotions that that there are. Mm. Okay, um, so I need to travel. I need to be in China. I need to be immersed in that culture. And that goes for small programs right through to large programs. We're talking a lot about national culture, but also within business units. How can I understand what engineering is going through if I'm sitting in my office for sales Mm. and never walking the workflow of engineering? So we need to travel. We need to move outside of our comfort zone and be on the coal front with the people um, in the different culture. So three things that stay with me is the uh, the concept that if we want to, to to create behaviors in a workplace that are sustainable for a multicultural inclusive workforce, it's about uh, learning through micro learnings because it needs to be a small pieces so that you can digest and maybe practice. And that relates quite a lot. You call it travel. I call it experience. Using your being immersed on the on the thing, so that you can really empathize with the the, the context, and you can develop the practice of how you should be behaving on the, on that environment. And lastly, so on top of the of this micro training, it is about developing as healing the system. In, in fact, so the the values, uh, the values of the company needs to be uh, needs to be revised so that, in fact, that it doesn't depend on being trained, but more on saying this is the way we are, this is how we do things, and there is no other way. Like we cannot tolerate, for instance, discrimination. We cannot tolerate that people do not feel safe uh, to say to to say what what they they want or they mean or they mean inf- because they belong at, uh, to a specific uh, culture that's something that the system should be reworked and this is not training this is no. a ceo slapping on the table and making it happen and sometimes ceo mm-hmm. prefer or prefer to have super good business results rather than an, a hell of a good culture environment that makes people feel safe, regardless of what nationality, what culture they belong to. Yeah, absolutely. Even though there's two quick thoughts in, in that. Um, the first one is uh, personal experience. So I do a lot of training on the workflow uh, with uh, cultural diversity, uh, etc. And what you often see is that people will say, wow, that's incredible. I now understand what group X is going through or group Y and why group Z is a little bit different to me. 
And then I observe them and they walk into the company canteen and they go and sit down. And who do they sit down with? They sit down with the guys with their own department or the guys from their own nationality and their own background. And then they come afterwards and they say to me, hey, you know, I still don't understand exactly what Group Z is going through. And I'm like, what did you just do in the canteen? You went straight back into your comfort zone, into your old environment, and you sat and ate with your own guys. When was the last time that you've gone across to a different culture, whether it be a national culture, generational culture, or even a business unit culture, and actually sat down with them and had lunch together? You know, there's something fundamentally intense and, and beautiful about breaking bread together when we're from different cultures and about sharing the basic thing that we all have to do, which is eat on a daily basis. When was the last time that I've actually sat down with you and said, hey, you know, how do we do that? Um, and I, I, I know um, from, from looking at some of your podcasts that you really love Tony Hesse's book on the culture at uh, Zappos. <laughs> Ah, you found it. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, that is deep dive. You know, you you don't just throw a little bit of a a training program at it. You stand as an individual at the head of a company or at the head of your business unit or even at the head of your team and say, guys, this is my non-negotiable. It's not about integration. It's about the fact that we have four nationalities or 12 nationalities, or in the case of some of my clients, 36 nationalities on the work floor, and it's time that we understand and leverage what we can learn from each other. Hmm. And that's not a training program. That's a way of life. That's a, a system of thinking. It should be as natural as breathing. Hmm. So I, I have no excuse if I'm spending $50,000 on a training program, and the next day I walk into the canteen and I sit with my same click again. I have absolutely no excuse then. <laughs> Very true. I wanted to share a story. Um, one year ago, I, I went to visit my childhood friends in, uh, in, uh, in Peru. Um, and what I found quite impactful is that the major discussion in, in most of the families is that there is a flow of immigration of Venezuelan people because they are suffering in their, in their country. And there is approximately one million people who came to Peru. <clears throat> The funny thing is that they were all criticizing the fact, yeah, they are not like us. The the level of criminality has increased in Peru because of them. And they kill people, they really kill them bad. It's like, what is the difference between killing bad or good? Uh, that's, <laughs> that's a Peruvian uh, conversation. They, they're really horrible. So, and... And, and then I, I was saying, because I come from abroad, so I, I was thinking maybe it's not true. So I, I went, I Googled, and I found a, um, a report done by the UN about the level of criminality coming from the different countries of the, uh, around in South America. And I see that the index of criminality for Venezuelan people in Peru, it was maybe one third of the Peruvians. So there is less criminal per capita uh, inside of the Venezuelan uh, population versus Peruvian. So I go with that st- study and I, and I share it with my friends so, so that they stop saying bullshit. <laughs> they didn't believe me. They say, no, this is manipulated. So my take on this is that our biases is so anchored that regardless that you put like real visible like data, people don't believe it. So when you when your bias have been 
already built and embedded in you is different. Uh, it's difficult to get rid of it. So now going back to to the place at, at work, believing that I don't know uh, that maybe that this woman got promoted because she's a woman, and maybe there was many men who deserve that position. Or let's say that oh, this Indian guy became the the CEO just because we have quotas on uh, on um, diversity. So how can we break? How can we teach pro people to remove these biases, this programming that has been repeated for so many years? Our parents have said it, our grandmas, our friends have said it. So how can we break it? I think I think we need to do a couple of things. First of all, we need to have the courageous conversations. In other words, we need to address it when we see bias happening. Mm. What do we mostly do within the organization is we don't address it. You know, if, if you hear somebody saying something and you think, oh, there's an implicit bias behind it or, or whatever, most of us think, oh, wait a second, I'm not going to get into this conversation now because it's going to be a challenge. It's going to be a difficult conversation. I don't have the time, you know, whatever, uh, leave it, let's go. So we need to hold ourselves to account. If I'm not calling out your bias, then I'm partially responsible for your bias as well. Okay, so I think accountability is a, a, a high thing uh, in there. I think we also need to uh, refocus on the effects of bias and make it with numbers that we can understand. You know, uh, don't just say you shouldn't be biased, but um, in terms of giving feedback, we always talk about naming the situation, naming the um, uh, what, what you did, and then naming the impact of that. So I think we need to focus on the impact of bias in how badly it influences uh, in our decision-making, uh, how it can really break our negotiation uh, prowess, you know, make it hard, tangible numbers that we can deal with on a, on a day-to-day basis uh, and get back to the roots. But the only way that we can do that is by really taking a look at our own bias first, hmm. understanding our own bias before we can address others. And these are not comfortable conversations even. They, they come conversations that take courage, that take grit, that take time. Things that we don't offer. So in, in a way, to, to put it very bluntly, we are responsible for allowing this bias um, to nestle within our organizations to grow within our organizations and to stay within those organizations. It takes you and I starting on a little level by just addressing our colleague, by speaking up to start that groundswell of movement away from bias. And not that fantastic training that HR has uh, uh, offered. They're good, but we need to go further than that. And I guess that it starts from the top because we, if we don't see this role modeling happening, like, like the CEO picking on someone in, a, in front of the public to understand how he thinks, how he feels about it, uh, then things don't happen. Because if we see that, oh, the finance director did the joke about women, so it should be fine. So I, I feel like entitled also to do my, to crack my jokes about women, right? 
So it needs to be a cascade that needs to be observed across, starting from the top, because we feel protected when we are rewarded for uh, for the, the right behaviors. So if we see that things are, are okay for this finance director, then okay, then it's something that is acceptable. Yep. I, I think you're absolutely right. There is a high degree of accountability starting from the top, but that does not negate the fact that we have to draw our own lines in the sand as well. Uh, because you can be in a toxic environment, but not be part of sustaining that toxic environment, um, if you understand what I'm, I'm saying. So if the, the CEO uh, is not doing it, or the, the, the HR director is not doing it, or your senior manager is not doing it, there's always the question that remains, um, which I think is a very relevant for this, but many other questions that you've addressed in, in the podcast um, and that is who's accountable? You know, the old adage, if not you, then who? If not now, then when? And if not here, then where? So yes, it starts at the top, but it gets carried out by us in the micro interactions that we have with each other every single day. So we need to draw our own lines in the sand. We need to call that finance director to account. We need to call the team uh, uh, person in our teams to account when they make a joke or a disparaging remark about uh, a different gender, about a different nationality, or even about a different business unit. We need to remind them it's not okay. And that doesn't mean we need to be sticks in the mud or be the, the, the most boring person in the party. Absolutely not. But we can do so with tact and with reverence for the other group and individual. Indeed. Chris, so what is terrible and kind of funny at the same time is that no matters how you feel liberated about biases. So you can think that because I grew up in a multicultural environment, I don't have biases. Hell, yes. And the worst is that when I, I catch myself with biases, I feel bloody ashamed. I, it's like, what the hell did I think? And I still remember one specific story that happened maybe 10 years ago. I was responsible for a, a talent development group, uh, group for very junior people, <clears throat> talent for a big corporation. And, and I, I remember that I associated the fact that a woman in, in the group was good looking with saying, yeah, I don't believe that she should be, she's talented. I did the shortcut like in two cycles and a half. So it took me time to reflect the next day. And I think that this story, I still bring it with me. I have never forgotten this, that what I did, what I, what I thought and, uh, at that moment. So anyone, you, me, we have biases. And the, the first step is about recognizing that we have built in that way because we are human. Once you Absolutely. have recognized, then you can amend your biases. Absolutely. Absolutely. Even what the, the example that I always use is I, I have done quite a bit of uh, training on the workflow, coaching, uh, consulting work, and particularly in logistics environments uh, and so forth, where there's a lot of use in the Netherlands and in, uh, across Western Europe of immigrants coming from uh, particularly uh, uh, Middle and Eastern uh, Europe. And the thought is always that implicit bias is there. If you are doing an order picking or a packing job 
in logistics. It's not the most highly paid job on the planet. It's not the most sexy job. It's not the job that gets you in the papers or gets you exposure or whatever. It's a very fundamental, and it's a good job. It's a job that you can do with your head held high. But the implicit bias is if you're doing that, you know, you're probably, you know, perhaps not the most highly university educated person on the planet. There's that implicit bias. Hmm. I cannot tell you how many times in the last 18 years that I've been working with a team on the work floor. Um, my, my speciality is operational leadership. So really nitty gritty, down to earth, no suits and ties, uh, boots on. Uh, let's get this thing going. Let's get teams working better together Okay, in an international cultural environment. And how many times I've sat and spoken to a team lead or to an order picker, and I've said, so what is your background? Where are you from? And they've said, well, I'm from Syria. I was a doctor in Syria. I was a surgeon in a hospital. Or somebody says, well, I'm, I'm from Poland, and I have a master's degree in robotics engineering. Um, or I come from uh, Bulgaria, and I used to be the manager of a large department with 200 people in it. Okay. And then I ask, what on earth are you doing here? What are you doing in this role at this moment? And, and what has your journey been to be in this role, to try and understand? And mostly they run up against the things that we all run up against as immigrants, you know, um, different uh, educational systems, not being able to transcribe our um, degrees into a different country and not understanding the language or not being able to converse fluently in that language. So the implicit bias that I have that somebody in a different position is not as good as experienced or as culturally aware or educated as I am is a very, very dangerous one. So we need to stop that. And that's something that I've learned. We need to stop assuming people uh, or assuming something. And I love the adage that is always said, as soon as you assume something about somebody, you make an ass of you and me. Hmm. So my takeaway about uh, about this discussion is that so we have learned that in order to remove biases and have a more inclusive cultural uh, cultural environment is not about how we train people is there needs to be something else so paying for training or awareness sessions will not solve uh, is a better investment if uh, I don't know if a CEO decides. Let's do something that is sustainable for the long term so that we we have a more we can benefit from from this diversity and inclusion by having more creativity. And by the way, the, the brain is wired that the more we hang around with people with different backgrounds, so the more we are training our brain to become to associate different parts of the of, of the brain. And this is what we call creativity. In fact, it's just that we are not using our analytical side, but different parts of the uh, of the brain when we are processing, I don't know, to adapt uh, with uh, the different nationalities or the different backgrounds. So CEOs are better off in, well, working already into their cultural values, how to integrate, how to role model these, these values. If they need help, it's, it's not about a trainer that they need, they need someone who is going to coach them how to develop this culture and how to reinforce this behavior so that it becomes visible across the organization and scalable. Uh, yeah, I, I don't think that a trainer can pull it out. I think that it's more like a kind of an advisor if they need help. But sometimes, well, sometimes it's, it's so common sense 
uh, that maybe you don't need it. But if you need it, then take an advisor rather than a, than a trainer. I think the danger is if you are remodeling your house or if you are, you know, trying to freshen up your house and bring a new sort of sphere into your house, you need a whole toolbox. You don't just need a hammer. Mm. Uh, and there's that old adage that says, if all that you have in your hand is a hammer, every problem seems like a nail. Yeah. Training is one aspect of a multidisciplinary approach to bringing in a new culture or, or uh, whatever the case may be. There's so much more than just training. Training is great to highlight awareness, to make us aware, but it's the start of the journey. It's not the end of the journey. And too often we've seen, okay, checkbox, end of journey, finished, and then we wonder why six months later we're back at square one and perhaps even more disgruntled than what we were in the past. Oh, yeah. So thank you very much for the time that you have spent with me uh, and with uh, our audience. I, I really love the perspectives that you have. You have men mentioned even uh, uh, someone, Hofstetter, that I remember that I, I, I read, I, I'm not a specialist in, in culture, but I read something where there was his name. And wow, you have used a li literature about uh, cultural intelligence. That's, a, that's amazing. So I, 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 I love the fact that you, you come with a background that is uh, based on research, based on actual practice and based on your personal experience, which makes you like quite unique here because sometimes if we have people who are really focused on the re research itself, on the literature, but what about the practice? And, and with practice is how we can implement new behaviors in a, in a culture. How can people reach you out, Chris? Well, they, they're more than welcome to look on my LinkedIn uh, page, uh, more than welcome to look at the website of Culture Beats uh, as well. Um, and I'm, I'm very interested in starting a conversation with people. And in fact, in, in that sense, even uh, not only have I enjoyed being on the show, it's, it's been a breath of fresh air to uh, be talking to you uh, as well. But I, I've, I've got a request, and perhaps that's part of my sort of move away from my own bias. So when I do a lot of my research on um, cultural diversity and diversity across generations and that sort of thing, a lot of the literature that I look at tends to be based on the Anglo-Saxon model. You know, it's, it's the Harvard, it's the Bostons, like you mentioned, it's the McKinsey's and so forth. So if any of your audience members, uh, your listeners, are very aware of excellent research being done say, on the Asian market uh, or on the South American market or on the African market by people, by uh, researchers, trainers, consultants, coaches who are based in that market and are doing their own natural research on those elements that we've talked about today, about the differences, the diversity, bias, et cetera, et cetera. I'd love to get in touch with them as well, just to, to get a, a more world-centric viewpoints than only uh, a Euro-American uh, viewpoint uh, on this. And let's let's get that conversation going and let's keep it flowing. That's a very good thing that we, I'm going to mention it in the description so that when we do the posting of this this episode, we, we have it there and we will have also how to get to, to get to reach who's, who's, it was really lovely to meet you. Likewise. Uh, there was some moments where you really touch my nostalgic side of uh, my immigrant background. Thank you very much for, uh, for your time. Ivan, so much my pleasure. Thank you for having me and uh, wishing you all the best 
for the future.